So turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I think if you have a pew Bible, it's page 976. Uh, While you're doing that, why don't you just go ahead and grab your Bible and stand up. I do this on occasion. When we're reading the Word of God, it's super helpful for us to just say, we honor the Word of the Lord. Okay? And so just while we read through 2, 1 through 10, um, let's just listen for what the Lord has to say. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Go ahead and take your seats. Michelangelo. You know, he's a famous artist. Perhaps you've heard of him. <clears throat> was once asked while he was chiseling on a shapeless rock, what are you doing? And he says, I'm an angel from the stone. It's amazing what a sculptor can see that we can't, isn't it? And part of being God's workmanship, as we're going to see today, is being liberated from our death. The problem is our culture really doesn't like to dwell on death too long. We like to move on to like happy thoughts and easy thoughts and simple things. We like to move on to the blessings before we actually just anchor ourselves and root ourselves and give ourselves a foundation that says, you were dead. Dead people don't make choices. Dead people need to be acted upon. And that's what happened. And this. So this morning, I'm looking at three basic things from this passage, death, resurrection, and life. Real simple, should be easy to follow. But let's start with death. Paul talks about this idea that every human's experience outside of Christ includes death. Every human. There's not a single person that gets by without understanding that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Now, we have to remember, Paul is talking to Ephesus, to to believers at Ephesus. And I want to circle back just a little bit toward Ephesus to remind us who exactly, the the context of who he's writing to. Um, If you enjoy a little bit of like biblical history or church history or whatever, you can go back and find out most of what you need to know about Ephesus starting Acts chapter 19. And in really Acts chapter 19 and 20, there's a long description of Paul's interaction there. But to kind of save time, uh, we'll just go ahead and summarize by a little bit saying, um, 
Ephesus was a leading city in the Roman Empire, uh, very prominent. And um, Paul arrived in Ephesus after being in Corinth on one of his missionary journeys. And what ends up happening is he, he asks the first people he comes into contact with, like, hey, have you guys been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And like, whoa, wait a minute. We only heard of the baptism of John. And so on to explain what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, and then he baptizes them, and then phenomenal, miraculous things begin to happen, and it's recorded as you walk through chapter 19. From there, Paul and his companions um, begin visiting the Hall of Tyrannus, where they give apologetic lectures uh, like every day, all the time, just kind of constantly sharing about the good news of Christ, proving Christ to be the Son of God. Um, And then, like, one of my favorite stories in in the New Testament is the sons of Sceva, these people who are itinerant exorcists trying to um, uh, peddle the power of God and say, hey, look, um, by by Jesus, the the God that Paul proclaims, I want this spirit that is at work to stop. And you're like, okay, so why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because they were doing it for personal gain and notoriety. And I love the story because the, the spirit rises up and says, hey, wait a minute, I know Paul and I know his companions, but I don't know you. And then it says that he actually beat down the seven sons of Sceva and they left wounded and naked. I don't know about you, but like if you start an argument with clothes on and you walk away with none, you've lost. Like you just, there's no way to like, it, the argument's over. And so this is Ephesus, it keeps going even after this, Ephesus is a, is a prominent city that has a lot of uh, Greek gods that they're worshiping. And so they're so strong in this uh, many churches within Ephesus that these people begin giving up their household gods. And then as a result, you have the silversmiths who come together who are making these household gods and they're like, wait a minute, we're losing revenue because people are finding Jesus. This is a problem. And then a riot happens in the latter part of Acts chapter 19. So this is the city that Paul is writing to. Just to give a little context, uh, they had the temple of Artemis or Diana, which was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this is a a town filled with pride, a town filled with, um, I don't know, a a lot of things that they had, a lot of knowledge, uh, a lot of wealth, And so Paul is writing to them, and he's saying things like, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But the question becomes, like, what are are trespasses and sins? Well, I would say uh, a trespass is just like a, a false step or a rebellion. It's knowing what you need to do and not doing it. And then um, when he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he's also remarking that sins are just this idea of Missing the mark. Picture a target. Not long ago, I was in South Carolina, and I was uh, shooting a crossbow with my brother-in-law, who's way better than I am, and uh, watching how he can just kind of hit the target, kind of each time. And um, then my son Pierce joined us, and he stuck an arrow into a log, and we had to, we had to retrieve the arrow, <laughs> and it broke, right? Because we couldn't hit the target. And so here's Paul saying, hey, trespasses, the known rebellion that you're going to do, sins, those things where you're trying to do something but you're missing the mark, the the high standard of God and you can't hit it. You were dead in those trespasses. But the question that I think really 
begins to come to the forefront for me is trespasses and sins I get. And, and perhaps you do too, where you know yourself well enough. You know that there are times when you are trying to do something correct and you miss it. Or maybe there's something that you know you ought to do and you just go the other way. Like, I don't even care. My kid pushed all of my buttons and I'm going to blow my top and lose my temper. Or I'm going to cheat on this test. Or I, whatever it is, the rebellion in you is like, I don't care. I deserve this. So th- that I get. But I, what I want to know is what, what is happening behind the scenes? Paul tells us we're walking this way, that we are following the course of the world. You've probably heard the phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we get that from this passage. In verse 2, he talks about um, following the course of this world. When I think of world, I think of a society organized without reference to God. Just drink that in for a little bit. What is society organized around no reference to God? What does it contain? What does it not contain? This Paul is saying, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, behind the scenes, kind of um, the, the war death is the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's influencing it all. One commentator says it this way. Wherever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular, which refuses to accept God, amoral, which refuses to accept absolutes, or materialistic, which glorifies consumerism, by poverty, by hunger, by unemployment, or by racial discrimination, or any form of injustice, there we can detect the subhuman values of this world. It's true. This world has ways of thinking and doing things that is just different than the kingdom of God. So Paul says, you were following the course of this world. In fact, one older translation says it this way, we drifted along the stream of this world's ideas of living. This is every man's lot. Then he says that we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this is a clear reference to, if not Satan, demonic powers. If not Satan, a bunch of his minions, right? In fact, uh, that term, um, power of the air, it's foggy atmosphere. Have you ever felt as though uh, there's, there's this understanding that things are just like a little bit cloudy? Um, how many times have you talked to somebody who's trying to make a decision, a life decision, like where I want to go to college or who I should marry or where, you know, like big decisions, and they're asking for prayer, and one of the things that they might say is this, I just want clarity. Like if you're making a big decision about something, even if you're making a small decision and you're going to make that decision, you want to know for certain, you want to be utterly clear about what you're doing. And Paul is saying that part of our death, part of our trespasses and sins, yes, is walking in the way of the world, but it's also being influenced by Satan and the demonic realm to just be a problem. (laughs) It gets things foggy. He gets things foggy. 
You see, the prince of the power of the air, the devil, is the commander of spiritual beings that are in heavenly places. And you see this in, in Ephesians 1.20, in Ephesians 2.6, in Ephesians 3.10, in Ephesians 6.20. There's this um, description, or Ephesians 6.12 rather, there's this description of heavenly places. Um, it would be ideal if we could see everything God sees, but we don't always see that. And so when God takes Jesus and he raises him from the dead and he seats him in the heavenly places with all authority, we also learn that the prince of the power of the air is working in the heavenly realm. He is, he is actively opposed to you. Do you guys realize this? Like we like empirical scientific data. We want the study to tell us what to believe, what to think. And, and science has kind of fallen on hard times, right? Because a lot of people say, follow the Science, right? And it means whatever you want it to mean. So we have a really hard time believing in something that is uh, hard to see, if not impossible to see, that is somehow influencing decisions, right? And so over here, we're just saying, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were following the course of the world, but at the same time, we also had like a cloudy understanding of things because Satan and the demonic realm, they're, they're working to influence us away from the kingdom of God. This is the war that's at work behind our death. And then he says, uh, the flesh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, passions are not bad. It's the description of the passions of our flesh, wanting what we want before we know what God wants. It's our fallen, self-centered human nature. It's the first one in line. It's the, I'm going to cut that dude off in traffic. It's the, I'm going to get mine. It's the, I'm looking out for number one. This is how we live. You're like, no, I know some really nice people. They might be nice, but get them alone where nobody's looking, and they're out for number one. You see, while we can't blame everything on the world, the flesh, and the devil, the three combine to certainly make conditions favorable for our sin, don't they? To make conditions so favorable for us to remain dead in our trespasses and sins. And so he says that, you were by nature children of wrath. Can I just say, that is not something that we want to talk about much. We want to move on to our like, oh man, wrath is a problem. Especially God's wrath is a problem. Um, I actually don't think so. I actually think God's wrath is an awesome thing. My wrath is the problem, right? My wrath is driven by fury. My wrath is, is driven by desires that are contrary to what God wants. But God's wrath is, is, is never capricious. It's never self-serving. It's never, God's wrath is always constructive displeasure. He, he's displeased with something and constructively he's aiming to demonstrate in order to make things just and right. That's why he is utterly angry over sin because he can't tolerate it in his presence. I'm mad because I'm inconvenienced. I'm mad because I lost 100 bucks. I'm mad because, you know, pick, the, pick your poison. What are you mad about? And Paul says, hey, look, you were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul's writing to this huge city that has all sorts of benefits. Everybody looks up to it. Everybody thinks it's awesome. And he's like, you're not even special. 
You don't even get the blue ribbon. We all are under the wrath of God. That's how you begin to appreciate your to understand that you're under his wrath. So that's our death. We simply can't bypass it. We must reckon the spiritual death of the Ephesian church that Paul is writing to as our own spiritual death. But look what happens. Paul moves from death to resurrection. Notice how verse 1, verse 4, and verse 8 start. And, but, and for. Just the progression of thought. It's the resurrection in verse 4 where he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, loved us even when we were dead. Even when we were dead. You see, this is a distinctive of God, his mercy. Think about Exodus 34 where Moses is begging to see God. God puts him in the cleft of the rock, right? And then he passes through and then what's God say? The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and compassion, right? His very nature is one of mercy. His very nature is one of mercy, And so then Paul says, well, how does he really show us this mercy? He shows us by three verses, five and six. And they come with this idea of unity or togetherness. Says that he made us alive together with Christ. That's the resurrection. Then he raised us up with him. That's the ascension. And then he seated us with him. If you look at Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, 22, somewhere in there, you'll start to see these are all the things. Like the Ephesians, as they're reading this, they would have read this and they would have said, oh, wait a minute. So like he's talking about Jesus, the resurrection, the ascension, and the seating of Christ. Like that happened at the beginning, part of Ephesians chapter 1. And so he's talking about Jesus, but no, pay close attention. He's saying, yes, I already did this with care of Jesus this way, but I'm doing this with you. I am resurrecting you. I am making you new. I'm raising you up. I mean, consider it this way. I'm resurrecting you from death. I'm I'm giving you an ascension to God. I'm seating you with him to reign. And I just want to say, especially after the first part of this, where we learn about the world, the flesh, and the devil, you you weren't saved to play nice. Okay? Okay? You you weren't saved from sin and self. Your deliverance from sin and self was not so that you could just be a nice person. Actually, so that you could make war on sin itself. It's actually so that you could destroy the works of the devil. It's actually so that you could um, promote the kingdom of God. You weren't saved to be nice. See, in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul tells us that our baptism is a burial and a resurrection that leads to a new walk. At the beginning of our passage, Paul had reminded us that we used to walk this way, following the course of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But now we're starting to learn that our resurrection has consequences. Our resurrection actually is not just in life and that's it. Our resurrection actually has like movement forward towards something and someone. Someone. 
And so we continue to learn, even with our resurrection and God's mercy, that our deliverance from sin and self is God's doing. I mean, very clearly, Paul is setting us up here in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 to understand, I don't contribute to my salvation. God is the one who gave me the gift of faith. God is the one who provides the grace. I'm the one who exercises the gift that he gives me. But I don't do something to start the salvation process. And then after he gets done explaining the resurrection, Paul moves on to this idea of like, what is true living? What's life? It says, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is really the meat, I think, of the passage, the place that we just kind of put the car in park and learn. True life means that we were made to reflect God. Your very existence is to reflect the glory of your creator, to reflect his character to others. In verse eight, he talks about this idea of having grace. It's by grace that you've been saved. Grace is just unmerited favor. Like, we just got done celebrating Christmas. Uh, Raise your hand if you got a gift, whether a card or a box that you opened or something. Just like, raise your hand, don't be shy. Did you get a gift? Okay. Pretty sure Jesus was the one who was born. What did you do to deserve that gift? Anyone? It's silly, isn't it? Grace doesn't make sense at times. Just... God handing us Jesus Christ when I was deserving of wrath and penalty and judgment and exclusion from the kingdom and all the blessings that he would provide. And he's like, actually, my my constructive displeasure, my wrath, because you're a children of mankind like everybody else, is, is pointing at this idea that you, by grace and through faith, can be a part of my family. You're like, well, that just doesn't add up. Welcome to God's kingdom. Because if you have stand on in your own strength, you're standing in the wrong kingdom. And so this idea of God's grace then is so powerful. It's unmerited favor. I can't do anything to earn it. Many of us, that is our default. I'm not going to lie, that's my default, right? If someone does something for me, what's my first thought? Man, not going to. Like if they drop off a meal. I'll take them their stuff back, all washed and clean with a thank you note and maybe a check or something like that. Like there's something in you that wants to contribute back. And actually, that's how the Christian life ends up working. Something in me wants to respond, and God is saying, then give me your yes. Give me your Give me your life. Give me your decisions. Give me your convictions. Give me your money. Show me that you care about me by how you live, by how you, Paul says, Walk. Unmerited favor. It's the motivator. And then he says, it's by grace, but it's through faith. See, faith is just a strong confidence or a reliance. 
I find this interesting because there are so many people I talk to who are like, I don't know if I can believe. It's just, I can't, it's like a blind leap. I'm like, but, uh, like, dude, you're married, right? Yeah. Okay, so, like, what confidence do you have that your wife isn't going to You, every, every day, every day we have faith positions. I get in my car and I have faith that when I turn the key, it's going to start. I have a chair that I sit down in in the morning that I have faith is going to hold me. I have a cup that I pour coffee in that I have faith is not going to spill. Every day, we have thousands of decisions that display faith. But the question is, where is your ultimate one? You see, Romans 10, 17, and this is one of the reasons why when I'm, when I'm dealing with people who are like, I just don't know how I feel about God. Like we're increasingly, we're coming up into this place where the course of means that we don't acknowledge God as a culture anymore. Do you know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, do you know how to engage that? Do you know how to engage someone who says, actually, I don't think there's enough existence for God. There's not enough data for me to conclude that God exists. How do you engage that? How do you lovingly engage someone in that place? And Paul is helping us here to see. In Romans 10, 17, he says, faith comes from hearing. And hearing comes through the word of Christ. So whenever I have someone who's testing the waters of faith and they're, and they're willing to read the Bible, I'm like, game on. <laughs> because this is where faith gets developed. True faith. Not faith in a coffee cup or a, or a mug or a chair faith in God. Now, by grace and through faith, then, Paul says in verse 9, this is the gift of God. I like how he doesn't say, this is a gift, this is one of his gifts, like, this is it. (laughs) By grace, through faith, you're in right standing with me, and so now, because you're in right standing, guess what? You can't boast. That means Darren Leitner's not even better than I am. I don't know if you, like, it's really hard to believe, but, like, that, that means that not one of you here am I better than. And Paul, in one sentence, levels the playing field. You're dead in your trespasses, but by grace and through faith, you're saved. And you're like, I like this playing field. I can do this. Like, this exactly. Jesus has done it. And this is what Paul is emphasizing more than anything. He's like, don't get caught in the weeds here. You can't boast. Why? It's excluded because of faith. Now, if you're not living by faith, you will tend to boast. Have you ever noticed that? The people that I know, greatest faith, hardly ever talk about it. They don't talk about it in ways of like, look what I did this week. They talk about it in terms of affection and endearment toward their Savior. They talk about it in terms of intimate relationship with Jesus. They talk about it in ways where his word convicted them and it moved them and they repented. They don't talk about what they did. They talk about who he is. It's huge. And so Paul says, look, by grace and through faith, you can't boast. Why? Because you're God's workmanship. And that term... Workmanship in the Greek is translated poema. It's actually where we get our, Greek, our English word poem. And Paul is essentially setting things up here by saying, all glory goes to God. 
your salvation, your good works, your existence, all glory goes to God. You may say, well, how does that work? Like, from a truth to life perspective, that term poema is only used one other place in the whole New Testament. And it's used, think of it in terms of a poem. And, and, and maybe even consider this idea of God as the author. Or even as our, our illustration at the beginning talked about Michelangelo, consider God as the sculptor, as the artist, right? He has a vision that he sees that I don't. And so what happens in Romans chapter 1 is that says that all of creation is there so that man is without excuse. So picture creation not as planets and stars, but picture it as a liturgy. Picture it as a written work. And the reader is you and I and every person on the planet who picks it up and they read it. And they're like, there's no way I can deny the existence of a God. That's like step one, right? Like, I can deny that there's the existence of a God. I can't and agree that there is a God, but there's still a further step of like, yes, there is a God, and I will live by his ways, right? And so Paul is saying that, like, that's where creation doesn't become enough. Creation, like, gets you started. Creation moves you down this path that says there's got to be someone more. There's got to be a relationship. There's got to be an interpersonal dynamic. There has to be. And he says, there is. And it's by grace and through faith and the sacrifice and the resurrection, the ascension and the seating of my son Jesus and my giving of the Holy Spirit as a gift to you to seal you until I come again. And you're like, oh. So the poems. Now maybe flip that analogy just a little bit and say, what about me? Like, am I a poem? And the answer is, you are. And the question is, who's reading what you've put on a page? And what's their conclusion? Johnny Erickson Tata once said this. <clears throat> if you know her, she... Uh, in a swimming accident at 17, became a quadriplegic and um, has never turned her back on the Lord and has seen his tremendous suffering and trials. And she says this, God has a plan and purpose for my time on earth. He is the master artist and sculptor. He is the one who chooses the tools he will use to perfect his workmanship. What of suffering then? What of illness? What of disability? Am I to tell him which tools he can use and which tools he can't use in the lifelong task of perfecting me and molding me into the beautiful image of Jesus? Do I really know better than him? If I am his poem, do I have the right to say, no, Lord, um, you need to trim line two and they're just a little dark for me. Do I the poem the thing being written, no more than the poet? And the obvious answer is none of us do, right? That's the sovereign wisdom of God that's just awesome. You see, we, lifeless as a stone, were and are 
being liberated from our death to become the new poem or sculpture, if you will, of God. A trophy of his grace to reflect his character. So if you're here this morning and you're like, I am worthless. I want to speak to that for just a minute. It could not have been easier for God to have overlooked you. Right? Because he made this decision, Scripture says, in ages past, before you even existed. So before you even had the thought that came to your head that I am worthless and I am unwanted and I am not cared for and I'm not desired and I... Guess what? God loved you. And he purposed in his heart to demonstrate that love at incredible expense to himself. Full expense once. But like every act of trespass and sin that Paul talks about is a pain to our Lord. The difference is, according to Romans 5, is like that one act, that one sacrifice cares for it all. But in his tremendous mercy, he pursues you who feel unloved and unwanted and not cared for. He pursues you who think you're awesome and you're God's gift to mankind. He pursues you who's like very middle of the road and you won't really commit and you're lukewarm. He pursues you too. And how does he do that? He does that by meeting you in your death. By his rich mercy and his great love. I mean, think about the most characteristic thing about God is the demonstration. I love how it says he's going to save us in order that in the ages to come he might demonstrate his riches of mercy and grace toward us in Christ. Like, that's why he was. Like, if you're sitting here saying, well, I just don't know if he really cares about me. Really? Like, read Ephesians again. Like, read Ephesians chapter 2 again and come to this conclusion that he deeply desired to save you. And you're like, well, I deeply didn't want him. And that's what makes his love all the more amazing. Isn't it? Like even in my enmity at God and rates his love toward me in Christ and I'm over here like throwing a pity party because I'm not really loved. It's like, just read the Bible, man. Just read the Bible. You are so deeply loved, so deeply desired and, and that grace and faith is there in order to save you because you are his poem. You are his workmanship created to reflect the character of God. You see, your deliverance from sin and self is God's doing. I'm going to have the worship team come back up and uh, wrap up with a song. I, consider, I, I ask you to consider as they're coming back up, what was it that God was speaking to me today? Is there something I need to hear, something I need to repent from, something I need to receive? and then lean into that.